Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Three months ago, Meadowbrook Church observed its uh, 20th anniversary. And for all who were here, that was a that was a wonderful experience. It was a magnificent experience. I can't tell you what it meant to me. Um, ever since that day, this message has been simmering in my soul. Because as we were observing the 20th anniversary, my mind was going back 21 years. And even a couple beyond that. On a late summer or early fall day, when Pastor Scott Brewer came for the first time to the Puget Sound region... And he and I held our first meeting in my executive offices at the back booth at Sherry's Restaurant at Maple Valley Highway. (laughs) And Scott was the pastor of the, the First Baptist Church of Fulton, Kentucky, a growing, large county seat church on a career path, if he was interested in career paths, as a young man. But he was seriously disturbed by the Spirit. And God had moved in his heart to come to this Puget Sound region and to plant a church. And he specifically was being called to the East Seattle suburbs north of I-90. I personally was counseling to head toward where Kenny and Cindy live, where we were getting great receptivity uh, there at Calvary Baptist Church of Renton, where I was serving. Now, while Scott was being seriously disturbed, our church had been through a process where, where because of the death of a congregation for which we were on the hoof for their debt, we had to make a decision about the sale of some property. Now, at that time, we were growing rapidly. We desperately needed space. We had a $540,000 debt. And guess what we sold the property for as a net proceeds? $540,000. Now, a thought went through our mind that that must be God because that would erase the debt and we could begin to build. But then another thought came that we could not escape. And that was that we invested this money years ago in mission to attempt to plant churches. That people had given their prayers, their blood, their sweat, their tears, and their money. That churches might be planted and people be reached in the region. And I'm just not real crafty and smart as a leader, but God is good. And somehow we navigated the seas of who would control that money, who would be in charge. You know, that money and and control are always issues. And uh, how it would be used... So we came to a strong commitment that we would invest this money in church planting and that we would do it in such a way as to be catalytic. And I had a personal commitment that leadership was the key. And so when Scott and I met at my executive offices at Cherry's, it was clear to me that this was the leader. And even if he did wanted to go to a tougher area, we needed to be a part of that team. And so we invested in what became Meadowbrook. Now, Scott has told the story that 
I didn't realize how much I was going to give because our oldest daughter, Amy, and her husband, David, became the first permanent core couple. But actually, to tell you the truth, in my heart, I knew they were going to feel the call to go. At the same time, about 30 people from our church, we asked them to make a three to nine month commitment to go and help in the initial stages. And my, our oldest son, Evan, and his wife to be, Cindy, came for for three months and they stayed several years. The day that Meadowbrook was launched, uh, we had prepared. Marilyn loves to cook for lots of people. And we had invited Scott and Sherry and our kids and a lot of other people over to lunch. And we eagerly awaited the news of the opening service. Uh, 20 years ago. It wasn't long after that that Dana uh, Hudson became one of the first persons to come to faith and follow Christ in baptism. And Dana reminds me that Calvary forgot to, to fill the baptistry so she could be baptized. So she was baptized in a hot tub. <laughs> so you can imagine the emotions that were stirred in me when we had that anniversary. As through the years, we've continued to uh, to track the journey of Meadowbrook and how special it's been for Marilyn and me to get to reconnect downstream with you. But now with all of that reminiscing, it's really because I want to ask you a question. Meadowbrook, from your perspective, are your best days behind you? Or before you. You know, when I work with churches, somewhere along the way, I ask that question. Because what I have discovered that it is very easy to become nostalgic and live in the past. And when churches live in the past, they're constantly reminiscing about what God did then. And really, they view their best days are behind them. They have planted the seeds of their own death. And let's get a little more personal. And I want to ask you, do you in your own life really feel that your best days are behind you or before you? I've been asking that question a lot lately. I got a package in the mail the other day. They opened it up and it said, congratulations. The moment you have been waiting for for years has arrived. You are now eligible for Medicare. (laughs) I'll say what? I never remember along the way looking forward to the days when I would get to be on Medicare. And surely it was a mistake. I mean, it was only, what, two or three years ago that I performed you guys' wedding ceremony. Oh, I guess it was. It was, yeah, it was many You were very young that day. (laughs) Not nearly so, but thanks. And for many of us, as, as we do what we naturally do as human beings, we age. We began to see that there's more mileage in the rearview mirror than there is through the front windshield. And it's very easy as we're rounding third base to forget to go all the way to home and just head for the bench. And as you get older and your body doesn't respond so well and you've had a few disappointments, 
you can really begin to feel your best days are behind you rather than before you. And wherever you are in your journey, you've probably gone far enough. You've had disappointment. You've had you've had discouragement. You've had even disaster. You've had downsizing. You've had despair. And all of that can tend to cause us to look in the rearview mirror and feel that our best days were behind us, not before us. One of the great good things about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if you really understand it, embrace it and live it, your best days are always before you and never behind you. Because you see, God works in the present from the future. And he uses our past to equip us that we may forge forward into the best future That God has waiting for us. I mean, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God knew what he had redemptively in mind from the moment of creation. And this same Jesus is most assuredly returning in power and glory at God's appointed time to gather his followers to himself. And we do understand, as Pastor Scott said a few weeks ago, that most of our lives, the overwhelming amount of our lives, are lived beyond the day of our death. And that God will make a new heaven and a new earth and give us restoration. And we will reign with Him as well as worship with Him and do creative work to His glory in that new restored world of God's. Our best days are always... In front of us. So how do we live in such a way that our next days will be our best days? Look at Hebrews chapter 12 with me. It begins with that word, therefore. So you always look back to see what the therefore is there for. And you discover in chapter 11, the great faith chapter of the Bible, where we have this roll call of of heaven's heroes, people who lived forward in faith to the glory of God. And then we read, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. How indeed... Do we run the marathon? Because you understand, if you read the the example of the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, and as you've lived long enough to examine life, life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. So it matters not so much that we are fast starters, but that we are faithful finishers. That when we have run for a long time and and we get tired and and we even get knocked down and we become weary and we we are tempted to drop out of the race that we continue on. That we build a life that covers the distance that we may finish the cross the finish line standing up and in victory. So how do we do that? 
Well, this passage tells us that it it really matters where we look. And we need to look in two directions. So what does Hebrews 12 say, first of all? It says, look to your cloud of witnesses. Now, who are your cloud of witnesses? I mean, I get get this picture of this great cloud of grasshoppers, you know, locusts just covering an area and and destroying everything in its sight. Or or the Mongol hordes as they went across uh, the ancient ancient world and conquered um, peoples. This great cloud of witnesses who are cheering us on. They've run the the race faithfully. And now they are in the stands as we are in the arena of our lives, running the race of our lives, cheering us on. Well, first of all, there are certainly people who are found in the Scriptures. One of the reasons that God has given us His Word, and we profit so greatly by reading it regularly, is because it is filled with divine mentors. Those who have run the race before us, and we can learn from them. Now, if you read that list in chapter 11, it's kind of an interesting list of people, because what we find out is a lot of these folks had a rather questionable pedigree. They had their dark moments. Many of them fell along the way. In fact, as Scott has said before, one of the things that to me lends authenticity to the Bible is that it never airbrushes the lives of its participants. We get to see them warts and all. You know, I don't know if you notice there's a young couple in this share group up there with some of those AARP people. And I I happen to know that Danny and Emily uh, chose us not just because of our great personalities, but because they were saying, some of these people have lived a long time. (laughs) And they've made a lot of mistakes. And if we just get close to them, we get to mind their mistakes and we don't even have to suffer the pain for it. You know, that's why we learn most of our stuff is through experience and failure. And the only better thing than learning from your own experiences is learn from somebody else. Let them take the licks and then you can profit from them. That is a wise couple. Our mentors in the scriptures through the failures Remind us that failure is not final, neither is it fatal. Just fail forward in God. Fail forward. That's how we run the race. And we learn that lesson through our host of witnesses, those who have run it before us. Some of the people in the scriptures here specifically speak to us. Caleb speaks to me at this point in my life because Caleb, you remember, was this uh, this old geezer who, along with Joshua, was the only one of two people who got to go into the promised land because he had such faith in God. And he was in his 80s when they finally went to the promised land and and they're divvying up the, the land and everybody's sort of jockeying for the, you know, the lakefront property. And Caleb says, just give me the high country. I've lived long enough to know that my God is faithful and he and I can we can take on anything. Just give that to me and I can learn from him endurance. We think about the challenge of being a Christ follower in the workplace. We can learn from Daniel. Daniel, who worked in one of the most hostile of all workplace environments, how to be faithful, how to garner respect, how to bring glory to God in a workplace setting. 
Have you been dealt with unfairly? Has injustice overwhelmed you? You can dwell on that. You can be beaten down by that. You can simmer over it. Resentments can build up that lead to malice and even to hatred. Or you can learn from Joseph how God is faithful in the midst of crushing injustice. And that how eventually you can come to say, well, you know, there were others who meant this for bad, but God meant it for good. He used it to save lives. We learn from our divine mentors. They are part of our cloud of witnesses. They also include the people who first pointed you to Jesus. In whose life did you first see the gospel? Now, for some of us, that was in family. Kenny and Cindy, I've met your parents. And I know this is true of you. Your grandma, Jewel, and your mom, they weren't perfect. But I tell you what, they, on my list, they're pretty close. Several years ago, when I was in seminary, there was a, an older couple in our congregation, uh, Ed and Johnny Glasscock. And they had grown up out in the sticks of northeast Texas in a place called Hickory Creek. Now, they came and told me that because they happened to know that my Applebee forebears, Sam and Donna Friend, moved from Oklahoma and became sharecroppers at Hickory Creek. And they had grown up with, with my ancestors. My dad was the psychological only of his family. There were five of them, and he was much younger than the others. And most of the older ones had died, and I never got to visit that place. And so Ed Glasscock took me to Hickory Creek. And it was out in the sticks. You could have driven a golf ball and not hit from the front yard of one house and not hit another house. You could have been Tiger Woods and driven a golf ball and you wouldn't have hit another house. And, and the church, the Hickory Creek Baptist Church, where, where my ancestors attended um, services, was down in the hollow. It was a white frame building. And Ed took me there, and I went up to the front door, and modernization had hit. It was locked. But that was not going to deter me. I was going to find some way to get in that building. And we finally found a window that was not locked. And so, with a boost from Ed, I climbed up, banged my head, barked my shin, said something like, uh, praise the Lord, or somewhere, something like <laughs> fell over into the floor, let Ed in, and he showed me the pew. Where my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my dad, attended church every Sunday. It was way up near the front, by the way. Showed me the altar where they came to faith and expressed that. We rummaged around in old church uh, closets and found old, dusty Sunday school books. And I saw the name of my granddaddy Appleby as the teacher of a men's Bible class way back in the 20s and 30s. For about four decades, he taught. My grandmother, who was president of the Women's Missionary Union. How could I but be blessed by that kind of cloud of witnesses? And you say, well, I, I wish I had that legacy of faith in my family. Well, God has given you a spiritual family. First of all, I ask the question again. In whose life did you first see the gospel? Who shared faith with you and made Jesus... Magnetic to you. Many of your host of witnesses are in this building. They're in this room. 
Hebrews chapter 10 says these are people who who you could call balcony people. They are in the balcony and they are cheering you on. They're not basement people crawling around in the dark, damp places, seeking how they can undermine you. They are for you. And Hebrews 10 says, cultivate these people, live your life with them. Do not forsake meeting with them. They love you rather than condemn you. They encourage you rather than criticizing you. But they are not delusional about you. Because your true cloud of witnesses love you enough to speak truth into your life in love. Do you have those people? They are like gold. I remember an elderly gentleman in the church I served whose name was John Smith. It was not an alias. That was really his name. And John Smith may have had a common name, but he was an uncommon person. And I knew he loved me and prayed for me and invested in my life. But he also spoke truth into my life. And he he revealed to me some of the stupid ideas and crazy things that I was considering doing and saved me from a lot of mischief. And I was uh, by his side when John Smith died prematurely of brain cancer. And I missed him sorely. And there were days that I made some really poor decisions that I had wished John Smith were by my side. Those people are gold. Are you running with them? Are you cultivating them? By the way, are you a, a witness in somebody else's life to cheer them on? These days, I am really motivated to pass the baton in full stride. While I'm still running the race, I want, to, I want to encourage and invest in as many people as I can. And there is no greater joy than that. And you don't have to wait till you get a Medicare notice. <laughs> so cultivate them. I understand that in serious varsity competition, that cross-country races... That rather than just lining up single file with your team of your seven varsity runners, there is a strategy that has proved to be a winning strategy where you do a one by three by three configuration. You have the lead runner. He is the proven champion, the best in the bunch. And then you line him up in front and then you have three by three and the other runners run following him and encouraging one another along the way. And where one person may be tempted to to give up or to slow down, another one running beside him can spur him on to continue in the race. That is the gift we have. I got a call this week uh, from someone about the Special Olympics. So evidently, I think there's a big Special Olympics event coming up. And there was a, a friend in our church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who worked with the Special Olympics. And he told me that one of the great joys of working in the Special Olympics is you would have these intellectually challenged kids who would be running in a race and one of them would stumble and fall. And he said, invariably, the other kids would turn, run back to him, helping up so they could finish the race together. Have you ever run in competition where that happened? But Galatians 6 says, when a runner stumbles... You who are spiritual, restore such an one, considering yourself that the time of your stumbling may come. How do we run the marathon? We look to our cloud of witnesses 
who are cheering us on as we run the race of our lives. And then lastly, what does the Scripture say? It says we look to Jesus. Remember the one by three by three? Jesus is the lead runner. He is the proven champion. He is the eternal God who, because of God's great love for us, laid aside his rights and privileges as God, became one of us and ran the race as it was meant to be run. And as we have embraced the Savior and we seek to run the race of our lives as Christ followers, we do so looking to Him. The Scripture says, looking unto Jesus, and the word literally means there, gazing steadfastly upon Jesus, riveting your eyes to Jesus, fixing your focus on Jesus. Put it there and keep it there. To run the race of your lives and to finish victoriously. And who is this Jesus we're to focus on? Well, it says here that he is the founder and the finisher of our faith. We come to the kingdom only through him. And we finish the race triumphantly only through him. He is the one who endured the shame, the cross, despising the shame. You know, crucifixion was a, a terrible form of punishment that the Romans introduced, which is interesting since the 22nd Psalm describes the crucifixion of the Messiah centuries before crucifixion even was known. Is that messianic or not? The Romans would never crucify a Roman citizen. It was far too painful and humiliating a death. In fact, that was the purpose of, of crucifixion. A criminal was so low... That he was to be held in contempt and punished for his vile uh, crime. And so he was crucified. And the world was saying, we hold you in contempt. And that's what they were saying when they crucified Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus held the contempt in contempt. He scorned the scorn for the joy of doing the Father's will and making it possible for you and I to enter the kingdom. That's the Jesus upon whom we focus. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He is sat down at the right hand of the glory of God. And what is the right hand of God? That is the place of all authority and power that can only be occupied by Jesus. And he is there and he has seated himself. What does that mean? It means that he has finished his work. It is finished that he cried from the cross, was saying, mission accomplished. I have built the bridge back to the Father. You can cross over. And that is the Jesus who sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, and we can fix our focus on him to run the race of our lives. So how do you run the marathon? Here is the fundamental priority, passion, and practice of the enduring life. It is every day to get up and renew the commitment of Psalm 27. I love Psalm 27. Filled with hope and with great promises. And the psalmist says there, My heart cries out, Seek His face. Your face, O oh God, will I seek. One thing I desire to gaze on the beauty 
of our God and to behold him in his sanctuary. The musing of the mind upon God, the practice of holy mindfulness that says that I will choose every day to fix the focus of my life upon Christ. Every morning we get up. And we can focus on any number of things. We will know right away that there are many things that are out of our control. Have you learned that? Have you learned that? Some of us, it takes a while to learn, us control freaks, that there are things that are absolutely out of our control. And they lead to the despair, the discouragement, the downsizing, the difficulty. But there are some things you can control, and you can control where you choose to place your focus. I mean, it's not like gravity that we have to automatically, you know, fall to focusing on our problems or our plans or our preoccupations or our priorities. We can choose to focus on Christ and God will work with us with that choice. Psalm 16:8. King David says, I have set the Lord continually before me. I have chosen to fix my focus on him. And because he's at my right side, I will not be moved. Colossians chapter 3 says, Since you have been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Actively seek them. Focus there. For you have died to the self-obsessed life, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Set your affections there. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I haven't already arrived. I'm still running the race. But this one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I focus forward. And I strive for the prize. And I reach for the goal. Choose to set your focus on Christ. And your day begins and the problems come. The challenges are there. The responsibilities that are a part of your life. The relationships. Glance at those. Gaze upon Christ. Glance at those. Gaze upon Christ. Continually learn to move your focus upward to the majesty and the beauty of your great God. How do you do that? Well, I have a suggestion for you. We're near the end of July. So you've got a week to get going on this and practice, and then you can move in and just give this a trial in the month of August with, with uh, July's last week being the warm-up. Begin each day with a moment of praise to God. It is amazing what praising can do. And if you kind of get stuck there, open up the Psalms. Start with Psalm 27, 103, 1, 100, or 32, or many others. The Psalms are a great praise book for us. So when you're stuck, get in the Psalms. And then offer a prayer of surrender. Lay down the control of your life at the feet of Jesus. Ask the Spirit who inspired the Word of God to illumine your heart and mind as the meaning application of the Word of God. And then get into a chapter of Scripture. And read it as an appointment with God where you seek an encounter with Him. And I challenge you to try that and see if, as you build that practice into your life, 
You will not begin the process of lifting your focus from the character of your circumstances to the character of your God. You say, I wish I could do that. I I just don't have time. I've said that before in my life. And I can stand here today and tell you I wish I had taken time. And the real question is this. Will you take the time and make the effort to build a life that covers the distance? Or will you settle for less? Since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles And let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the founder and the finisher of our faith. Consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. So imagine Scott's slide this morning that says, what are you supposed to do about this? What are we asking you to do? First of all, will you open up your heart like a flower opens up to receive the sunshine and the rain and invite Christ to come in? To receive such a great Savior we sang about a moment ago. Will you, as a Christ follower, Choose to lay your life at the feet of Jesus and be ready to do everything he asks you to do. Will you listen to the cry of your heart when the spirit is speaking? Seek his face and determine today. Your face, O oh God, will I see. We're going to move to a time of worshiping God through the offering. That connection card is an opportunity for you that I would like you to pray about as the offering is taken. And consider whether you would register a commitment to Christ. Whether you would ask for prayer or counsel regarding to that. There is something that is important about driving a stake in a moment and making a conscious commitment to change your life to the glory of God. And I would encourage you to consider to start with the first thing, return to the first love, do the first things, lift your focus to our great and beautiful God. Father, now as we prepare to worship you through giving, speak to our hearts and our wills concerning worship in the word today. And Spirit of God, woo us to say yes to your bidding. In Jesus' name.